Well, good morning, everyone. So pleased to be here with you this morning. So pleased to be sharing. Uh, so we're continuing our series today. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 7. If you've got, got your Bibles, feel free to turn there. But before we dive into that particular uh, bit of scripture, let's just set a bit of a big picture context as to what's going on. I always think that's a helpful approach to take whenever we dive into the Bible. Like, what is it that is already gone on? What is the writer trying to do and achieve? So, the earliest reliable tradition links this gospel to Matthew, the tax collector, who is one of the 12 apostles that Jesus appointed. And his overarching purpose is to demonstrate to the Jewish new believers that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And he's aiming to show how Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of the whole story of God and of Israel. So he's trying to show that Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David, that he is the new Moses and that he is the proclaimed Emmanuel of God with us. And so as such, it's actually the gospel that references the Old Testament more so than any of the others, which is part of the reason why it's actually placed first in the gospel order, because it links best to the Old Testament, even though it's not actually written first. And the main body of the gospel is separated into separated into um, five distinct sections, um, each of which conclude with a block of Jesus' teaching, which creates this kind of interesting, te- if you find this interesting, teaching in authority parallel between Jesus and Moses, to whom God revealed the law, which was found in the first five books of the Old Testament. So we've got this five kind of parallel going on here. And where we find ourselves today in Matthew 7 is within the first of those five sections. And the main point is that Jesus is announcing that God's kingdom has arrived and he's come to confront evil, to restore God's reign and to create new family. So the block of this teach, that this teaching concludes with is perhaps Jesus' most well-known, the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5 through 7. Um, I know many of you will be familiar with that. Um, There's a shorter parallel version found in Luke 6, but we're going to use the Matthew version today. And here Jesus is exploring what does it look like to be a follower of God's kingdom? What does it look like to be a citizen of heaven? And he's giving us wisdom and instruction so that we reveal what God becoming king, what him ruling and reigning on this earth looks like through us. And what Jesus was doing was really challenging for his hearers because Jesus knew that if we are to display God's kingdom, God's rule and reign on this earth, then actually something deeper than outward reformation is required. It wouldn't do to just simply tighten up existing laws and regulations or to enforce them more strictly, which is what the Pharisees wanted to do. They're going to be appearing in our our little talk today. And there was this popular pressure group who were wanting and urging moral reformation through outward action because that's how they seen, how they understood God's kingdom coming on earth of what that would look like. But Jesus had something different in mind. Jesus was talking about a transformation of hearts. And it's this that will show God's kingdom on this earth. So again and again in this block of teaching in Matthew 5 through to 7, Jesus is showing us what it looks like to be co-heirs with him. And it's a message of healing. It's a message of forgiveness. It's a message of renewal from the inside out so that we are transformed people, both in hearts, in words, and in actions. 
So as we approach this final section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, are you tracking with me? Where we are, we're about to go into our passage. Um, He's already called us to lay aside some pretty big areas. He's already talked about anger, contempt, lust, manipulation, the anxieties of looking good, of securing ourselves through, through wealth. Like some pretty big areas, aren't they? And I really think Jesus was the most skilled teacher that has ever been and will ever be. And I think he progresses his teaching so it builds on each other. So I would humbly suggest that if we have still got areas of our life that are dominated by those things, actually we are going to find it hard to grasp the more tender areas that he's moving into now. So to set us up then, Matthew 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 first of all. Jesus says this, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. And here is our question this morning, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. Now I think when we read the words of Jesus, We read them in a very serious tone. At least I do. In fact, I read all of the Bible in a very serious tone. And and I'm not saying that we shouldn't take the Bible seriously. Of course we should. But what I think we miss when we read it in that way is that Jesus is being intentionally funny with this question and comical and wildly exaggerating, obviously not literal. So for our more visual learners out there, I have brought a um, small little prop this morning. And it is small because I had to think about what I could hold in one hand with a microphone in the other. Um, Here's my log. Here's the illustration. I'm going to stick it as close to my eye as I can. So for anyone listening on the podcast, I've got a a bed slap from one of my children, a previous bed, not their current one. And and I'm holding it up against my eye. And the the equivalent is this, is me saying... um, Andrew, Andrew, I can just, I can just see you. There's a little speck in there. There's a speck in you. I, I think you really should get that out. You know, should I, should I come and get that out for you? Like that's ridiculous, right? Why on earth am I the person best placed to do that with this going on? I'm quite clearly not. It's comical. It's exaggerated. I think though, what Jesus is talking about. It's quite obvious though, isn't it? He's talking about how do we relate to our brothers and sisters? How do we relate to each other in this church family? How do we relate to each other with those that we are close to when there is time to bring correction? And that is tricky sometimes. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And we're going to think about three different ways. Oh, there's a little bit of carpet I keep tripping up on. We're going to think about three different ways uh, of understanding and of applying these verses this morning. I'm going to go pretty quickly through the first two. And the third one is really what I feel Holy Spirit has for us to um, pursue this morning. So as we are people who bring correction to those around us, to those close to us, to our friends, we need to be people who are firstly taking responsibility for our own personal holiness. Taking responsibility for our own personal holiness. We need to be committed to the process of sanctification in our own lives and being sensitive to what Holy Spirit wants to refine and shape in each one of us so that we become more like Jesus, our version of Jesus. Like each one of us is unique and the way that we display Jesus is unique. 
And we need to respond to that prompting of Holy Spirit with maturity. Some commentaries make the connection that the words Jesus uses for um, log and for speck of sawdust in other biblical translations um, actually come from the same root word. And so they make the connection that actually, could it be that the, the error, the shortcoming that we are so quick to point out in another is actually that same thing is present in our own lives? If I spend my Monday to Friday at work busy gossiping in the staff room, and I overhear a conversation within this context of someone talking about someone else, am I best placed to be the one that brings some kind of challenge to that situation if I'm actually not prepared to work on myself in how I show up in the rest of my life? No, of course not. Like, as Jesus said, that's hypocritical. That is hypocritical. Secondly, we need to be people who are aware of our blind spots. Now, physically, a blind spot is one of those areas of our vision that we think we can see, but really, we can't. Now, here's a picture of my car. Some of you might see where this story's going already. It's a great car. It's served us really well. It's quite old now, but it's doing great. And um, now picture this. One Sunday morning, several weeks ago, I was running a bit late. Shout out, by the way, to all of the people that have small people to get to church in the morning and vaguely arrive on time. Like, well done. Well done for being here, that corner in the back. Jesus sees us. Um, I was running a little bit late, and I was busy trying to get the kids ready, who I swear go intentionally slowly at any of those moments. And, um, and John had already left for church, and he'd taken the church van. And in order to do that, he had taken our car off the drive, pulled the van out. And then I'm assuming he was probably also pushed for time because he didn't reverse the car back into the drive. And he parked the car. That's no judgment. It's fine. It was literally like 10 meters away. Um, and, uh, and he parked the car behind a van just a little way up the street. Now, here's me, busy, busy, busy. Come on, kids, let's get and strap you in. And, oh, we've forgotten a toy. Get the toy, come back, right? That's the scene going on. Get in the car. Vaguely check the rear view mirror, sort of just cursory. And uh, put the car into reverse. Reverse way too quickly. And bump. In fact, it was more of a crash. <laughs> and Asaph really helpfully just went, Mummy, you've bumped the car. And I was already having to like, take quite a lot of self-control to watch what was coming out of my mouth as it was. And that just didn't help me in that moment. And the result was this. <clears throat> there we go. I know. A big dent. I'd driven straight into a concrete street lamppost, um, which I had not seen at all. It was right in my blind spot. And I genuinely had the audacity to have a conversation with John of saying, why would you park the car there where it's immediately, I have got a street lamp in my blind spot. Why would you do that? As if somehow trying to transfer that responsibility. I've since repented. Um, and so the dent is still in our car to remind me of this very pleasant Sunday morning. But my point is this, like as a driver, my blind spot had revealed itself. I didn't intentionally damage our car. And we as people have blind spots. Now, if this isn't painfully obvious to say, we're blind to them. So they're really hard to see. 
And that, so actually, we need to be people who are intentionally and actively going on a journey with Holy Spirit of inquiring what those blind spots might be, of how we interact with people, of, how, of the words that we choose to use, of our responses of, of when other people do things that irritate us, whatever it might be. Like, what is going on in us that we might be blind to? And they might be incredibly obvious to those people around us. Like, if any one of you was stood behind my car as I reversed, you would have immediately seen that I was about to drive into a concrete post. It's the same with us as people. Sometimes what's so very, very obvious to eat of, of when we look at other people, we don't see about ourselves. But the only way that they can be revealed where we can actually have internal transformation and change is actually when we choose to partner with Holy Spirit to actually ask and inquire of those things. These two applications fall into this common overarching interpretation of we should not judge other people for their faults or for their shortcomings because we have our own shortcomings and faults as well. Like what is that log to go back to Jesus' illustration? Where though that interpretation I think can sometimes fall short is when we use it as a reason to not have permission to either bring correction to somebody or to receive it. Because who are we to do that? Because we've all got our stuff. But I think if we arrive at that conclusion with these verses, we've missed it a bit. And I think we've confused bringing healthy, loving correction with judgment. And Jesus is warning us of the latter, not of the former. For me, Jesus is showing us in these verses yet again, what does it look like to love in the way that he loves which Andrew so eloquently tells us about this morning for his own life. Andrew, you're absolutely one of my heroes. We need to be people who are getting rid of self-righteous superiority. That's where I want us to go this morning. Let's have a look at these verses again in Matthew, but we're going to look at the amplified version this time, which I think has some helpful expansions for us in understanding the meaning with this lens. So it says this, do not judge and criticize and condemn others unfairly with an attitude of self-righteous superiority, there it is, as though assuming the office of a judge so that you will not be judged unfairly. For just as you hypocritically judge others when you are sinful and unrepentant, so will you be judged. And in accordance with your standard of measure used to pass out judgment, judgment will be measured to you. Why do you look at the insignificant speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice and acknowledge the egregious log that is in your own eye? That means appalling. If, like me, you didn't know what that meant. Or how can you say to your brother, let me get the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, you play actor, pretender, first get the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So with this comical, exaggerated question... The key principle that Jesus is communicating here is the motivation and attitude with which we approach other people in their shortcomings. So if our attitude is one of judgment, of condemning, of blaming, of self-righteousness, we've missed it. Because do you know what? The presence of judgment pretty much guarantees an absence of love. If we would really help those close to us, if we really want to help each other in this church family, for us to be the fullest version of who we are, if we want to learn to live together in the power of the kingdom of God, which is what we want, right? I want that more and more. We need to abandon that deeply, 
deeply rooted human practice of condemning and judging and blaming. And good grief, it's so easy to do, right? So easy to do. Holy Spirit, I'm just going to pray right now. Holy Spirit, you're already here. But as we just continue this morning, would you just help us to become so self-aware of what's going on in us? And Holy Spirit, we just say right now, if there is any part of us that is holding on to self-righteous superiority or that we are behaving in a way that is motivated by that, we say, Holy Spirit, come now and know our hearts, know our thoughts and come and search us. And we say we want to leave this morning looking more like you, Jesus. So guys, heads up to where we're going in ministry time. Don't look surprised when we get there. Jesus is telling us here then that we should and that we can become the kind of person that doesn't condemn or blame others. So as Jesus instructs us to not criticize, to not judge, to not condemn, like, have you asked yourself, like, why does he then ask this question about logs? Like, why, why does that follow in his train of thought? Like, is it because there's something wrong with us simply because we're human? Is it come some kind of like statement of probability? Well, there's probably a log in there. Like, I don't think that's what it is. I think it's because Jesus understands what that type of judgment from one person to another takes and involves. So as I read these verses, I think judging others with that self-righteous superiority is the log. That's the log that's in our eye if we're judging is that we have become self-righteous and believing ourselves superior. So why is judging each other so counter to kingdom culture? Judgment creates a line. And I think that line can be, this is true for me, just to let you into my world, that line can be called better than, smarter than, more worthy than, holier than. It creates a me and a them. That's what judgment does. Often I get to that point because I am trying to uh, understand that my reaction, my hurt, my response, my pain is not only understandable, like to be understood in that situation, but is somehow justified and right. That's why I think judgment comes in is to help me know I'm right. And that in turn says that that person's wrong. And I think very, very few situations are ever quite that black and white. You see, when we judge, what we ultimately communicate, albeit perhaps unintentionally, is that in some deep and possibly irredeemable way, that person is bad unacceptable, to be rejected, to be excluded. Blame, condemnation and judging, like they knife into these core areas of our being that are precious and sensitive and to be nurtured. It touches on our identity and it all too easily leads into shame and self-condemnation in the other. Actually, that who they are is not okay. It closes the door for Holy Spirit to be able to move. And I think we, we rarely intend such outward or inward rejection. But I think most often we find ourselves in that self-righteous superiority because it's trying to make ourselves feel better about something. 
Perhaps we're actually blind to it. So how do we bring healthy correction? Because let's be clear, Jesus is not implying that we need to somehow be perfect in order to have one of those conversations with another of bringing some challenge or bringing some correction. Like the Bible says that iron sharpens iron. We are here together as a family to help each other be the fullest version of what God has for each one of us, to help each other on that journey of transformation and renewal and sanctification. And in fact, Jesus says that we need to remove our own log so that we can help our brother and sister. Jesus isn't asking us to suspend our critical faculty, our critical thinking. He's asking us to stop operating out of a critical spirit. And I think they are two very distinct things. So for example, the last time I went to the dentist, Kieran, his name is, he's an excellent dentist if you're in need of one. And um, he, he looked at my bottom teeth, which are quite tightly packed together. Um, and he said, Emma, I can see that you've still not been flossing those bottom teeth. And your toothbrush is not able to get into all of those different areas. And so plaque is building again. Sorry if that's an overshare on my uh, dental hygiene, but my point is this, like Kieran's job is to assess and discern and judge my teeth and my gums and my ability to practice good dental hygiene, which was obviously not going very well in that particular instance. Like that's his business, isn't it? Is to discern and to say what he sees, but he's not judging me. Now, I know that's a bit of a silly example, but my point is this. We do not have to, and in fact, we cannot surrender the very valid practice of discerning and saying how we see things with Holy Spirit in order to somehow avoid Jesus's instruction to not judge, criticize, or condemn. We can, however, work very hard at bringing correction to our friends and family without attacking their worth, or somehow marking them as being rejected. To, re to correct another person without communicating this, I think it's actually very, a very difficult balance to strike and takes great maturity. And Paul's got some helpful words for us here. In Galatians, he says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual, that is, you who are responsive to the guidance of the Spirit, are to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, not with a sense of superiority or self-righteousness. Note that parallel wording there with our Matthew section. Keeping a watchful eye on yourself so that you are not tempted as well. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the requirements of the law of Christ, that is, the law of Christian love. Aren't those words amazing? So helpful to us. We see here who the ones are that are to bring correction those who are responsive to the guidance of the Spirit in their own life. Which is that not exactly where we started? Taking responsibility for our own personal holiness, intentionally going after what our blind spots might be. And you know what? If we are people who are not prepared to take responsibility for ourselves in those areas, then honestly, I think we should shush when it comes to pointing things out in other people. Take responsibility. Then you can have a voice. Is that a bit harsh? Sorry. It is true. Thanks, Mark. And what's the purpose of this correction? I love this. To restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness. The correcting to be done isn't a matter of somehow like straightening out or hammering hard on their 
wrongful doing or how it made you feel or the hurt that you hurt has been created. It's about restoration. Beautiful. Now also note that Paul makes it really clear that the one who is restoring another must remember that they could very well do exactly the same thing. And it's that that should totally remove any sense of self-righteous superiority. And as we make that connection, um, a guy called Tom Long, who's written a commentary on Matthew, says this, we move from harsh judgment to a tender concern to help the neighbor. Instead of a finger poked in the neighbor's face, we reach out mercifully to wipe the neighbor's eye. I love that picture of compassion, of mercy, of a genuine desire to humbly help the other. Now, for millennia, the other, the excluded, was the leper, the most potent symbol of condemnation. The immoral person, in whatever way you want to interpret that according to culture, has had an equally long run in history, the divorce woman as well. And one of the major lessons of the Gospels is to see how Jesus interacted with those groups of people. And time and time again, we see Jesus accepted them. He ate with them. He talked to them. He, ex- he embraced them. He brought them into his family. Jesus did condemn. He condemned the self-righteous and he condemned the corrupted leaders. But not once do we see it with any of those other groups. One of the most beautiful examples, I think, of these principles in action it's found in John's Gospel, John 8. When, I'm not going to read it out, but you can turn there if you like. Um, which is where we see how Jesus interacted with a woman who had been caught in adultery. And the Pharisees had brought this woman before Jesus. Crowds surrounded them. We already know that the Pharisees had completely ulterior motives going on because it says very clearly that they came to test Jesus to see what his application of the law of Moses would be because the law of Moses says that anyone caught in adultery needed to be stoned to death. Now, in our Matthew 7 passage, Jesus is being funny. He's being comical. But as he shows us what it means to live this out, there is nothing funny about this situation. A woman's life is at stake And his response to the Pharisees is full of wisdom. You who have no sin, cast the first stone. And as he exposed their self-righteous superiority, one by one, they fell away until it was only Jesus and this woman, surrounded by the crowds, left. Now, can you imagine for this woman what that would have felt like? Caught in the act of adultery, brought before perfect, sinless Jesus. And what does he say to her? Where are your accusers? Didn't one of them condemn you? No, my Lord, she said. Then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Isn't that an incredible response? Neither do I condemn you. If anyone had justification to condemn, it was perfect, sinless Jesus. But that is not how he interacted with this woman. Great respect for her. Restoring her dignity. Encouraging her to step out in the life that she could live 
in obedience to God, not ignoring her sin, but he dealt with her with mercy and with compassion. Conversely, the motivation of the Pharisees in that situation shows us exactly what Jesus is warning against in that Matthew 7 passage. So to jump back to that, he summarizes this whole section of teaching of that first part of Matthew 7 with verse 12. So then, treat others the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the essence of the law and the writings of the prophets. And aren't there clear echoes there with Matthew 6, where he's teaching us how to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Like there is something of the kingdom here that Jesus is wanting us to grasp, that as we extend respect and honor and dignity to others, as we extend that, we extend that in the way that we would hope to receive it. And that is the way that his love behaves. Now, it's interesting to note that in today's culture, a disagreement with what somebody um, does or how they do it is now generally equated to you are somehow condemning and blaming and judging me. And I am being rejected because you are rejecting my choice of behavior. And the belief that we are our actions, I think, can easily lead to that conclusion. And such misunderstanding makes it all the more important that we are very clear in our own minds what condemnation, judging and blaming is, and how that is different to what Jesus devotes the last half of Matthew 7 to, which is about us practicing discernment. They're different things. So as we look at each other, like if we discern something that we think we can humbly help them with, without any self-righteous superiority. We need to have an equal focus, Jesus, that far from condemning me, he died for me. He died for you. And is right now intervening on our behalf in the heavens. God is very clear. He sent Jesus not to condemn the world, but to save it. That must be the lens with which we see each other because we get to co-reign with him in acting that out, in bringing that to this earth. As we release compassion and kindness and mercy and truth, Jesus echoes our response. Like he said to the woman, if no one else condemns you, then I won't either. Isn't that incredible? That is the people that we get to be. People who reign with him, people who bring his truth, people who bring his compassion and his mercy, that we get to be iron sharpening iron as we are in relationship to each other and as we take responsibility for ourselves. So if you're able to, will you stand with me?